Hello and welcome to the very first edition of Trinity Reconnected. Forty years ago this summer, I graduated from Trinity College Dublin with a degree in economics and politics. Most of my working life since then has been as a broadcast journalist, mainly in the UK, where I still live. But what happened to my fellow 1982 grads from across all faculties? Over the course of 12 episodes between now and the end of June, I'll be speaking to the head of the European Medicines Agency, doctors, lawyers, a Jesuit professor of theology, entrepreneurs, engineers, poets and photographers. I'll also be looking at the big stories of 1982 in the company of former RT newsreader Clodagh Walsh. But my first guests are three ex-classmates. Two are joining me from Dublin, while the third has been living and working in the Netherlands for many years. So, Greg, let's go to The Hague and say hello to everybody. Well, I really have not seen you for all those years, 40 years. So it was fantastic to see you on a recent uh, Zoom call. And um, yeah, I obviously was in ESS, uh, uh, ending up with a Bachelor of Business Studies degree, uh, went on to join KPMG and uh, qualified as a chartered accountant in the mid 80s and then headed off to Australia, where I actually worked for Coopers and Lyrebrand in Australia and uh, Papua New Guinea for nine, well, two years in total, part of the Irish immigrant uh, wave at that stage. Uh, being in Sydney those days was a bit like being in downtown Dublin. You just knew sort of every second person. So it was amazing. Um, and then I came back to Europe because I found Australia too far away and I missed my family and friends and uh, ended up working in the Netherlands where I've been working for US and Canadian corporations since 1990. Yeah, now that's a good introduction. Slightly long, but it's a good introduction, but we have a lot to catch up on, as you say. So I'm going to go to Dave Kelly now uh, in Dublin town. Um, Dave, tell us a little bit about your career. Hi, Jim. Similar to Greg. Um I also ended up doing accountancy after college, even though my primary degree was in economics and politics like yourself, Jerry. So I was uh, totally unprepared for uh, the life of business, but that, that's where I ended up. Um, I ended up working for a client called the Land Corporation, which was an Irish pharmaceutical company at the time that uh, had uh, just recently listed up on the uh, American Stock Exchange, on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. And that started off for me as a, a career in the pharmaceutical industry and in finance. I worked in various aspects of the Elan organization, including working with them for 10 years over in the US. Um, and then finally, through a number of acquisitions and smaller companies, I ended up back in Ireland, uh, ultimately running the operations of a, of a company called Horizon Therapeutics PLC, uh, which is headquartered in Ireland now and just has actually just recently bought a plant uh, down in County Waterford. Um, ah, yeah, so that's my, my background. Wise move yeah. to bring in my home county and city of Waterford earlier on. You're exactly. in my good books already. Always happy, always happy to help the regions, Jerry. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what about Dave Mitten then? A true dub. Yeah, Jerry, a true dub. And thanks again for inviting me on this. Um, so uh, I graduated with you guys, 82, uh, single honors economics, um, probably not really knowing what that was going to lead to. Um, Got offered only one job in the El Mill round with Anderson Consulting, so took it, um, thinking, great, business consulting, this will be great, but ended up being trained how to uh, program COBOL and sent on assignments. So that kind of set my career in, in the IT world, even though I must say I didn't, didn't select it like that, it just kind of happened in terms of, of the job. Uh, worked for five years with Anderson in the United States and, and, and in Ireland. Then I moved to the Bank of Ireland Group um, and spent quite a long time there in various roles, IT roles in, in the life company and, and in the main bank. 
and about eight years ago, um, went out my own in terms of, of uh, IT consulting and have worked in quite a number of uh, uh, banks in Scotland, uh, Russia, and I'm back again now in, in Dublin working on a banking project. So that's me. Pretty impressive all round, guys. A lot of IT financial expertise there. I'm going to start with you, Dave Mitten, because all of us knew nothing about computers. There weren't computers in Trinity during our four years, and we certainly didn't know anything about IT. So, Dave Mitten, how did you end up really being an IT specialist in the financial stroke regulatory world? There was one machine in the office, one computer that we learned, uh, VisiCalc, which was a pre-runner of, of uh, Excel and, and, and those things. Um, we did get trained on the mainframes because clearly the, the mainframe computing had been on the go since, you know, the late 60s in, into the 70s. So um, so that's where we got our, our COBOL training and, and, and our first training in technology. Um, and from then on, it kind of it kind of took off. I, I kind of got I, I, I was reasonably good at it, so I did like it. So when I said earlier that I sort of fell into it, I did, but I did like it and, and, and I stuck with it and, and it and it's just to be honest with you, it, it's mushroomed over those years um, into all sorts of programming languages, making life easier for the world to 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 do business in, and, and uh, it, it's now something that I think it's actually really hard to even keep up with, you know. Uh, but it has come to to dominate our world, um, and more more importantly, um, but maybe not for the good, dominate certainly our children's world. Um, yeah, no, it's a very important point about our, our children's world and how different it is. But I just wanted to bring Greg in because, as I say, you worked uh, in accountancy in for a short while in Australia and Papua New Guinea. So in the late 80s, was there much technology beginning to come into that world before you landed in the Netherlands in the early 90s? One of my recollections of Papua New Guinea was literally we had in a small office in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, we had a, a secretary who would work all day working on, you know, letters and, and, and reports and accounts. And at the end of the day, would take her clothes off, put them on her in a pot on her head and walk up to her village. where Take was, all her clothes off? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it would be, you know... Are you no, sure you're not mixing this up at Sydney, a Friday night party in Sydney? No, not, not uh, <laughs> not the famous cross in Sydney, no, um, would walk up to, to the, her village and basically, you know, there, there was no running water, no no electricity. And uh, and so for me, it was fascinating to see the, the cultures. Uh, and, you know, this is, well, quite a long time ago now, but, but it was very much in development. So it was fascinating to see the technology that she was using. Um, and then, you know, the, but the way that some of the people were, were, were living. And Dave Kelly... You know, the, uh, uh, I hate to use the term the typing pool, but you know, typing pools did exist. You know, in KPMG, you 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 handed over a sheaf a sheaf of handwritten paper yeah, yeah. to a person who who produced a set of accounts to you. And in our lifetime, we've gone to a stage where, frankly, people who were then highly qualified were doing that sort of work. Yep. And I think that's what kind of drove a lot of outsourcing. Then that we went to other countries because we had. You know, we had highly qualified people that cost a lot of money doing jobs that actually they shouldn't have been doing because we thought this was a cool thing to do because they had technology at hand. And uh, I think that has had, you know, ramifications, good and bad. Um, it's made it's made companies very, um, very productive in some ways and, and has made people very productive, but at a cost. And the cost has been that they've had to look elsewhere to to kind of uh, generate those jobs and those jobs have, have have gone elsewhere which is fine 
And that's been pretty good for other countries, including probably Ireland, that was able to kind of start to go up the ladder in, in terms of productivity. But I think we're seeing the ramifications now in, in places like the US where, you know, there's a very dissatisfied population because they frankly don't have the jobs that were as good as the jobs that their parents had. The, the core of, of if, you, if you take the United States as probably the best example of it, the core of manufacturing is now gone. So, you know, the, the, you, you hear you could, the rust belts of, of, of Ohio and, and, um, and Wisconsin and all. So the, they, they've all gone and, and they weren't replaced by other decent jobs. They were replaced by some decent jobs, but not enough. And I think our economics models would have told us, no, it could be all fine because they will get replaced by other things. But in reality, that really hasn't happened. So I think the West now is facing, I think a reasonably grim period in terms of, for, for, for our youth, in terms of what sorts of um, jobs can they get and, and, and how productive can they be? How successful can they be? You know, and, and it's not all bad, but, but I, do, I do feel that that's where we're heading. And I also feel we're, we're, we're in a little bit of a race to the bottom. You know, I, I, may, I, I, I was involved in a lot of outsourcing to India, so, so maybe I was part of creating the problem and, and I, was, I was out there quite a bit. And I remember saying to a colleague, well, well what happens after India? And the response was, well, we, somewhere else will be cheaper and we'll move there. Uh, so, so The UK Irish uh, American model is regarded at one level as being an outrider, an outlier, whereas it was viewed that continental Europe workers' rights were more protected. But your time in, in the Netherlands, you were working mainly for Canadian and American companies. So where do you sit on this argument about, yeah, we made progress, we opened up new frontiers in business, but it did mean a lot of people were pushed to one side? Well, I think that there's a there's a halfway house. I, I probably spent a lot of my time explaining uh, to U.S. executives and uh, you know how how European laws work and why they're there and and actually you know the, the, they're there for a reason. Um, so the, the, there wasn't always understanding of that. You know, why do people have a minimum number of vacation days, for example? Why is there maternity leave pay and all this sort of stuff? So. I mean, I would sit certainly in the middle, but I think there's there's good things about the the U.S. model, um, but there's definitely good things about the the European model. And you know, I would I have discussions. But there's, for example, workers' councils in, in in Europe, and and you know, after a certain size, companies need to have workers' representation. And you know, U.S. U.S. ten executives tend to look at that with with absolute horror. You know, how could you manage? How could you ever run an organization like that? Having you know, the discussions with the, the workforce. But I mean, in my experience, I've seen that work extremely well. And it just really adds to the to the level of buy-in and cooperation. And it doesn't have to be a negative. It can be a negative if it's approached as a negative, but it, it can actually bring huge benefits. So I see those, there's massive cultural differences. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of my time has been spent bridging the US culture and, and, and the European culture. I noticed that none of you uh, were tempted to uh, move to the UK. I know, Greg, you were in the UK for a while. And I suppose looking at Britain today, post-Brexit, from a Dutch perspective, you're kind of saying to yourself, I think I dodged a bit of a bullet by not uh, spending my entire career in, in, in the UK. Just being in London at the end of the 80s, it was it felt like going back in time um, and it was depressed. London, you know, obviously now it's booming or was booming. 
Um, but you know, they were manufactured times, and it was it was a tough tough environment, and I didn't want to stay there basically. So hence, I looked to to the continent, and ended up in the Netherlands. And yeah, when I see all the Brexit, I mean, I people here really struggle with Brexit. I mean, why why would they vote for that? And you know, what's the benefit? And I and I think people are still looking will be looking for a while for the, for the benefit. So that's that's been a a big discussion here, obviously. Uh, and David Mitten, you were actually spending time in the UK post the referendum because you were working in Scotland for a number of financial institutions uh, yeah. back and forth to Dublin, but spending a lot of time in Glasgow and Edinburgh. The ones that I, I worked with are mainly were, those that I worked with were, were um, uh, against Brexit. Um, but but funnily enough, they, they weren't for um, Scottish independence either. They didn't want that. So that was just an interesting. But they they couldn't see uh, a bit like Grace. So why why would we why would we want to leave uh, at all? They 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 felt that the the uh, European Union on balance gave them benefits. I mean they 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 complained about how much the UK was contributing and all those good things. But but on balance they felt that in terms of access to markets and free flow of labour and all that that it was, it was a really good thing. You sort of got the feeling that they were very gung ho about Brexit and 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 the kind of the prospects of of. Uh, a, a resurgent Britain. When you get down to the nitty gritty of talking to people in business or people that are involved with, you know, trying to deal with the post-Brexit world, then that's a different picture. So I think, I think on Brexit, the jury is still out. It's 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 uh, very easy to get the headlines that sound quite dramatic. But I know from I'm involved in a small business at the moment, actually, that's training, um, would you believe, um, people in, in customs officers and things that are training people to deal with Brexit. And there's plenty of demand out there for businesses because they're <laughs> struggling with the consequences of a country that, in you know, Britain that had been at sort of the center of the European Union, one of the, the big three, and now has the same trading relationship as as one person put it to me it has the same trading relationship as venezuela with the eu in terms of, of the brexit agreement i mean the two davids in dublin you've seen the very highs the big boom in dublin then the crash then the slow recovery greg you've seen the economic cycles across europe also fluctuating just on the uh, the irish case i was in the uk during the time and going back to visit family and friends in the early 2000s I was astounded at yeah. what was going on and couldn't quite believe it. Um, main lesson, Dave Mitten, from the boom and what's happened afterwards? Oh, dear. Uh, main lesson. Um, just feel, and it wasn't just Ireland, that, that we, we uh, have created a world which lived entirely beyond its means. Um, and we, we, well, I'm using the royal we, 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 the government or whoever, we flooded it with money as well um, for it to be able to live beyond its means. Um, and we really could never pay it back. And, and I think the big lesson has got to be that in the future, we've got to try and manage our economy and manage even our own budgets a bit better in terms of um, bit better in terms of within within the means that, that we've got. And for me, that that's the, the big lesson. That'll be hard to do, by the way, because I think we've created uh, we've created something which people are used to just going into debt for 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 practically anything. 
um, the banks. It'd be very hard. Were, yeah, it'd be very hard to do, Dave. But I'm glad to see that some of your economics uh, training is coming into into play with your analysis there. <laughs> and David Kelly, what was your take? The main lesson of what happened over the last 20 years, because sometimes to me, looking in from the outside, even in the last few weeks, when you've seen the exchequer returns, which are amazing after the pandemic, and also the growth rates forecast for the next few years, things seem to have turned around relatively quickly after a lot of pain. Uh, probably like you, it's, uh, and maybe all economics graduates of our time, we kind of shake our heads and going, surely, surely this is the way the textbook says it wasn't supposed to work, right? Um, you would have thought that having so much cheap money for so long and turning on the printing presses and quantitative easing and things would, would somehow start translating into uh, problems, greater inflation and stuff like that, and doesn't seem to have happened. But maybe it's maybe we're beginning to see this, the signs of that now. Um, I agree with Dave. You know, I think we absolutely lost, lost the run of ourselves in the financial markets. A lot of cheap money going around. It was it was easy to raise money for things. And, and let's face it, we kind of all benefited from that because we probably all worked in companies that really were able to to do some pretty amazing things during that period. But, you know, the um, the flames were just uh, beginning to sort of nip around our heels. And, and I kind of worry about the fact that so many years now after the crash that, you know, are we looking at another uh, another um you know, are there are there other dark crowds on the horizon that may bring back some of those that maybe we haven't learned those lessons? I had I had two parents still alive then, and so I was over extensively. And I mean, I just I just found it fascinating because it it wasn't happening to the Netherlands, and certainly not to the same extent. So you would go to Dublin and literally, you know, sit in a taxi, and the taxi driver would tell, "Oh, I just bought two apartments in in Sofia or." Or you know Latvia or somewhere, and so oh, you know I own five five houses in South Africa, this sort of stuff, uh, and you just kind of think, okay, well, fine, um, good for you. I was out walking my dad's dog, and and uh, up in Sandyford, and they the, bulldozed the the local pitch and putt and built some apartments. And this lady said, oh, would you like to have a look? And I went in, and they said, oh yeah, lovely, these are great apartments, you know, eighty square meters. And I said, okay, fine. What's the asking price? Oh, five hundred and twenty-five thousand. And I just, my jaw fell. I just thought, my gosh, you know, for, in the center of Amsterdam, right, which was a big capital city, Dublin has caught up since, but back then, uh, you know, it, it was nowhere near it. And and I just thought you wouldn't, you wouldn't pay, you know, half of that in, in, in center of Amsterdam at that stage. And but let's take a little moment to reflect on what was happening in the news in 1982. And those headlines are read now by the XRT newscaster, and that's Clodagh Walsh. The first two weeks of January 1982 saw some of the heaviest snowfalls and lowest temperatures ever recorded in Ireland. The East Coast was particularly badly hit. On January the 12th, a low of minus 19.6 degrees was recorded at Glasnevin. Troops were deployed across the capital to try and clear the streets. Meanwhile, hundreds of cars were abandoned on the Nace Jewel carriageway, while many hundred people became trapped in Dublin Airport, after huge snowdrifts made the surrounding roads impassable. The Taoiseach, Gareth Fitzgerald, was forced to cut short a holiday in Tenerife. In other 1982 news, technology took a giant leap forward with the October release in Japan of the world's first CD player. For the 
Brilliant. And I think I was able to buy one of the uh, one of the first CD players. Um, actually, I do remember it. One of my my first CD was was uh, our friends Electric from Gary Newman. Wow. Uh -huh. Yeah. No, he's um, he's still touring yeah. in the states, I think. But yeah, uh, yeah wasn't my type of music, I have to say. But he sold a lot of copies. So, what about you, uh, Dave Kelly? I think my first was uh, Fleetwood Mac. Um, rumors, I think I replaced the old vinyl with a, uh, a CD because I'd, I'd worn out the original uh, yeah. vinyl. But I also remember my, my, my one of my best memories about that, and you probably remember this, Jerry, is that I remember lending you a lot of my brother's old uh, albums, um, yeah. vinyl albums, so that you could play them on a pirate radio station at two o'clock in the morning, which I think was, was one of your first radio debuts, which I, I'm still very proud of. I dine out on that story. <laughs> no, I was very grateful because uh, I didn't have many records up from Waterford with me, so um, any additional and quality material was always welcome. And what about you, Dave Mitten? CDs. Um big impact cds I, yeah yeah i don't remember i had lots of vinyl like everybody um i don't remember the, the exact cd but i suspect it was uh, a richard thompson cd given that i liked him then still like him um so i you used to go to that. a lot of his gigs actually you love yeah, richard thompson and, yeah and still do he's still touring he, he he's he's uh, well into his 70s he lives in the united states but he he, he tours quite a lot in, in 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 europe so i still go anytime i get a chance and then in terms of CD player, I, I do remember the first time I bought a, a kind of a, were they three-in-ones or four-in-ones? It was a pioneer thing that had the CDs. The big snow of January 1982, Dublin cut off from the rest of the country, much to the relief of the rest of the country probably. But um, it was pretty cold and it lasted for about two weeks. Uh, Greg, do you have any memories of it? I do. I remember I had a car back then, a small little Simca, and I remember driving up to, to see my, my parents in Sandyford and just the walls of snow um, and just uh, having to dig dig <laughs> dig them out. Uh, there was so much snow. It was incredible. So I remember Merv Jacob came up with me and we, we spent the day digging snow off, off the drive. It was just incredible. And uh, we shared rooms in college. It was bloody freezing because there was single pane only. And, uh, you know, you could look at the ice patterns on the window but they were inside. Uh, I, great, uh, Jerry. I, it was, to me, I felt like, a, as I was, a very, very privileged to be living on campus in Trinity, surrounded by snow. It was incredibly beautiful. The whole of Dublin had come to a standstill. Uh, we ran out of bread. We ran out of just about everything because the shops didn't open, except that the Lincoln Inn served soup. So that was a good place. You could <laughs> soup have and soup. pints, I think, was soup the correct phrase. Yes, yeah, soup and pints. So we had nourishment, some nourishment. Our memory of it is actually more to do with the pubs being open and certainly do remember being on O'Brien's and Leeson Street and having far too many hot whiskies followed by snowball fights and slipping and sliding around. So didn't try to get into town too much, but any time I did, it was mainly to go for a, for a, for a beer or, or, or to meet up with people. And that, that's been my memory of it. So, um, say a sincere thank you, and it's been lovely to talk again to David Kelly and David Mitten in Dublin and Greg Turl in the Netherlands, joining me on the first episode of Reconnected, Trinity Reconnected. There'll be another one in two weeks' time when I'll be talking to an academic, a social worker, and a man who gave up his swimming pool in California to return to Ireland to open a bookstore out west. But for now, from all of us at Trinity Reconnected, thanks for listening.